Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. I think that one of the main challenges that you're confronted with when you get cancer is that you are completely unprepared. You're thrust into this alternate universe where you're confronted with new rules and new terminology, new specialists, new perspectives, and all of a sudden you have to make decisions and you have to talk to new people and you really don't understand the world and where they're coming from. So I believe that it's incredibly important to really get the perspective of the person who's treating you. So today you're going to hear from Joseph, who is a top, top urologist who works with cancer. And Joseph is involved in incredible amount of work, from seeing patients and performing procedures to doing research and training the next generation of experts. And he's also got his own specialist podcast called Talking Urology. And today he's going to give you an insider's view into the world of urology. Joseph, thank you so much for doing it. It's a pleasure to meet you today. Joseph, tell me, what is it like being a urologist and what does your typical day look like? So being a urologist is a lot of fun. There's a lot of different specialties and we get to choose our specialty along our training. But being a urologist is fantastic because we have to deal with great patients and I think very interesting conditions that, that urological patients have. My average day would look like usually getting up quite early and often we'll need to see patients that we've got sitting around in uh, various hospitals if we've operated in different hospitals and then we've got to get to whatever we need to be to at 8 or 8.30 a.m. which will be an operating list or a list of seeing patients. So they're the two main things that we do is review patients to chat about what their management will be or their next treatment or trying to sort out their problems and then we'll have operating lists and they will go for half days. We tend to have sort of half day operating, half day consulting we call it and you can do that in either public or private hospitals. So most urologists and certainly most specialists tend to have a mix of public and private. Tell me, Joseph, why, why did you become a urologist and uh, has that perspective changed over the years? Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody grows up wanting to be a urologist. <laughs> it's a bit of an unusual specialty to choose, you know, thinking of checking men's prostates and looking inside bladders. It doesn't, doesn't sort of strike you as something that a teenage boy aspires to be. <laughs> but I think this is a really important point about medical specialists. And they say, I think there are doctors that choose their specialty, but I think far more often the specialty chooses the doctor. So different specialties have different personality types. So I always wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. So I thought, this is what I'll do. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll have a sporting background. I'll start you know, replacing knees and hips and it'll all be a lot of fun. And then I realized I didn't really love orthopedics. I didn't love looking at bone fractures and deciding if people needed hip replacements. And one of my rotations when I was a junior doctor was to do urology and I was really stuck with it. And I thought, oh, this is a shame. And I did it and I absolutely loved it. And there were two reasons for it. One is that I really get on well with urologists. So the people that were my bosses at the time, just I clicked with those their personalities. And I think they're, you know, some specialties are very high strung, other specialties are very laid back. Urology is quite good, it's sort of in the middle. And the urologists I worked with, they had a lot of outside interests. So it wasn't just about, you know, always having to look after people or thinking about that 100%. And if you've got that great perspective, it brings, you, know, you can then bring that into your patients. You know, you can, when you see them, you can be more relaxed. And I, I like to think that we're, we're relatively friendly when we chat to patients most of the time. And the second issue, so one, I liked the specialty and I like I liked the doctors. But the second thing is you, you find you have a knack for something. And I, <laughs> I had a real knack for urology. So the, when I was an intern, my very first year, 
once I'd finished medical school, like we had to, we, one of the things the interns have to do is put catheters in patients. You know, and some people just cannot put a catheter in a patient to save themselves. And yet I sort of had developed this reputation of being very lucky. And I still think it was luck, <laughs> but I could put catheters in patients and there is a bit of skill to it. And there's just things that you either pick up really easily or there's things that you don't. And I always picked it up. So I had a knack for it. I like the doctors, but my, another important thing is I like the patients. So I really liked treating men with prostate cancer. That was what really brought me in. Because you've got these guys, and we had this prostate cancer clinic in the hospital that I worked at. And these are guys, the patients this is, that are in their 60s or 70s. They've had, they've had good lives. They've got a cancer that's not usually rapidly progressing. And they live with it a long time and they, they're very philosophical about it. And you can imagine that's very different to other specialties. Say if you're a breast cancer surgeon, you're dealing with usually women quite often in their 40s with young families. It's incredibly stressful, you know, as a, as a, as a patient and as a doctor, you know, wow. looking after these people make, you, know, you take that stuff home. So it's, uh, you know, having men that come in, they sort of know each other in the clinic and they're, they're all relatively happy. That's a, that's a really different yeah, and the worst thing that I would ever could do would be pediatrics. You know, the thought of kids being unwell is uh, just didn't appeal to me at all. So <laughs> my specialty wow. chose me in the end. Yeah, well, that's a fantastic insight, Joseph. And you, you would have, you would have definitely hated me as a patient. <laughs> and I just felt like there was there was a lot happening. You know, it um, is with with cancer, right? It's madness, and the, the and that's how I can feel. I mean, I'd like to say that it's very controlled behind the scenes, but from your perspective you as a patient, you're given a lot of information very quickly because a lot of the time with these cancers, decisions need to be made relatively quickly. So we, we can't spend three months backwards and forwards until you know every little bit about, for example, let's choose a, you know, choose a cancer such as testicular cancer or bladder cancer. We know from the literature that's out there that if you wait more than three months from when you are first diagnosed with bladder cancer to having your ultimate treatment, which may be cystectomy or radiation treatment or just having that tumor removed, if you wait more than three months, we know you don't do as well as people that get treated in less than three months. So we are racing against the clock. Now, we don't, we're not proud of the fact that you would walk away not understanding what we've been talking about. That's ne absolutely never our, you know, what we're trying to achieve. We, we are trying to get you to know as much as possible, but we understand and it's been shown that as soon as you sit down with someone, you say, oh, you know, we're just, you know, urology has lots of areas around it, but we're talking cancer today. Um, if you say, look, you've got cancer of the bladder, this is what we're going to do. Studies have been done on the psychology of that people do not remember the first thing or the next thing you say after they've had cancer. <laughs> you can have a one hour conversation with them where you have this wonderful to and fro and they will walk out of, and if, and they've done studies where, right, what did you talk about today? And the patient will go, I've got cancer. Well, remember, did he mention the treatment options? Oh, he did, but I can't remember them. <laughs> he or she is, you know, urology has a very good female uh, representation. But so we need to give you information that you can digest and we need to do it in a relatively quick time, which is why these support groups are very important and we're big fans of them. I, mean, I think some, it's very hard to say for a testicular cancer because it's a relatively rare cancer, but for prostate cancer, for example, there's lots of prostate cancer support groups around now, and they're fantastic because people can spend a lot of time talking about it with other people who are about to go through, have gone through exactly the same thing. And that's very useful because that reinforces to them what, what the doctors say. Oh, I remember my doctor mentioned that. Is that what he was talking about? So we get a lot of that from the prostate cancer support group. So I think we don't intend to confuse you. We do try to give you all the information. There's a lot of written material around that we will give you, but a lot of that can be very difficult to understand. Even, even now we know that 
understanding, like when you do medicine, just going on a bit of an aside, the average person uses about 5,000 words in their general spoken language every day. That's just the common 5,000 words. You learn them, you can learn nearly any language. By the time you finish medical school, you've learned another 5,000 very basic words. So it's essentially we've doubled our vocabulary wow. that we use when talking to each other. And that can be very hard for us to pull back when we're trying to get across to patients who are clearly not medically trained. You're not supposed to be. You have your own specialties and interests that the things that we need to say, because in fact, this treatment will help you. So that's why we don't always do a good job of that. Now you make such a great point, Joseph, because, you know, I remember that I was in such a complete fog, you know, in, in, during this initial diagnosis and things happened so quickly. Like within a week, I mean, yeah, I had this, my left testicle taken out. And you make a fantastic point about, you know, leveraging the knowledge of people who've gone down that road before as well as talking to specialists such as yourself. So how do you break the news about cancer? Having said all that. It's an art not a science. Some doctors are better at it than others. My personal approach is to be honest and empathic, I think. And that's really tough to do because there's some patients that want to be eased into it. You know, they want to sort of be taken out to dinner before you, you know, <laughs> sort of metaphorically speaking, before you hit them with the diet. But others say, oh, why did you spend the first five minutes wasting my time if you're now going to tell me I've got cancer? They don't say that out loud, but different people have different personalities. And it's very hard for us as doctors to read what sort of personality type is the patient. So I find I have the least trouble by being you know, absolutely honest and then getting their feedback on, on how they feel about it. So you know, you'll have either, so for example, say we're talking about uh, testicular cancer. Let's just say it's a good one because that's where you've come from. So you would have noticed a lump, most likely. You would have had an ultrasound and your GP would have said, that looks like cancer, you've got to go see a specialist. Right? That's what yep. it would have been. And so we'd see you, we're not going to sit there telling you, oh, you know, it may or may not be cancer. 99% of the time, a lump in the testicle is going to be cancer. So we will say, and I would start with, right, you have, you know, so as you've just started with your, your GP, I think you're well aware that you almost certainly have testicular cancer. But then you've got to very quickly move on to what we're going to do next. So, you know, this is a cancer that affects the testicles. It can spread outside the testicle, but the vast majority of the time it doesn't. And we've got plenty of great treatment options for you. We're going to start by, so this is sort of how I do it. You know, we're going to start by removing the testicle and then we're going to check to see if it's spread. And that's when we do the CT scan that you would yep. have had. And, but you're always saying, you know, and this is, you know, this is a great cancer for treatment. You, know, you try and give them the positives. And the vast majority of people will be cured with testicular cancer. It's a relatively easy conversation to have. You've got other cancers such as bladder cancer where you say, oh, well, you know, I looked inside your bladder. You know, you're having bleeding and I've looked inside your bladder. And when they wake up, you've got to tell them, oh, I've, I did, I noticed some cancer inside your bladder. Now, what we need to do next is work out what sort of cancer it is and how far it's eaten its way into the wall of the bladder. So you've got to give people hope. That's what I like to do because... At the end of the day, there's no point. There's no point not telling people what's going on. I think it's very important. And, I, and in fact, a lot of patients that you that we hear about say, "Oh, my doctor didn't tell me anything." I think that's extraordinarily rarely the case. I genuinely don't think there's no role for doctors ever to hold anything back from their patients. Certainly, a lot has changed in the last fifty years with regards to medicine. We've gone from patriarchal medicine where people turned up, patients turned up, and the doctor said. You will have this done. Don't ask any questions is what we're going to do. That, that's not the case anymore. We're very much, it really is a journey together. So we will say to patients, all right, this is the problem. This is what we're going to do together. I'm going to operate and then you're going to do this and we'll do that. And So I think it's very much a, 
a joint decision-making process where the patients are involved in every step of the way. Yeah, that's fantastic, Joseph, because I think that that honesty and directness really builds trust between you and your patient. It can do. You say that, but, but some people find it very confronting and they'll say, oh, that doctor has no bedside manner. There's some doctors that do it well. There's some doctors that do it poorly. But even the doctors that do it well are going to have patients that will be upset because, remember, there's, there's different personality types. And you're not always going to get on with your patients. That's, that's very true. And that, that raises a whole new issue of if you don't get on well with your doctor, find another doctor. All right. That goes for whether it's your GP, whether it's your, your specialist or whoever you're seeing. Because sometimes you're just not going to get on well with people. That's just a fact of life. It does not mean they're not doing a good job from a medical perspective for you but you're just not clicking. I think that yeah. can happen. So when that happens, like if, let's say if you're a patient and yeah. something's not working, either you know, emotional or you're, you know, you're not happy with the level of information that you provided, how do you look for someone else? How do you start that conversation? Where do you go? What do you do? It's a good point. There's two reasons you should go see another doctor. One, if you're really not getting on well with your doctor, and that's usually personality, it's you, you know, the doctor's I feel like I'm, I'm closing ranks, though I don't mean to. I'm saying, but we are very well trained and we need to continue to maintain standards that are, that are at least acceptable to our peers. And it's a lot like airline pilots. You know, it's, it's, some airline pilots are good, some are bad, but the planes hardly ever crash. All right? you know, they're still, even the bad ones are still doing a really good job. All right? um, and that's like your doctor. There's a 50% chance that your doctor is below average. That's just statistics. Right? <laughs> but even if he is or she is, you're still, they're still doing a really good job. So if you don't get on with a doctor, go find another one. And the best place to start is your GP. All right? and the GP is the most important person in any part of your medical treatments or medical um, pathways and, and uh, management that, you, that you're currently going. So go back to your GP and you just say, be honest, say, look, you know, I didn't get on well with him. Is there anyone else that you would recommend? So that's one reason. The second reason you should go see another doctor is for a second opinion. And that can be, you can get on incredibly well with your first doctor, but we'd always recommend that you consider getting a second opinion for something that is going to be a major decision, such as a major surgery, major uh, new treatment plan, all right? Because it's always good to hear someone else's take on it. You know, doctors don't always agree and you want to know that you're making the best decision for you at that time. So once again, with that, your initial doctor probably will be a little bit offended, but shouldn't be because that's medicine. All right. I know I've certainly had patients that have gone for other second opinions and you think, oh, didn't I do a good enough job? But in fact, if I were a patient, I would go get a second opinion. All right? That's exactly what I would do because you want to make sure you've got the most and the best information. And, and after a second opinion, it's probably a law of diminishing returns. Then you would see other people have gone to see five or six specialists. And in the end, they just end up being more confused. And your GP is the right person to do that again. Or you can even ask the specialist you're seeing, you could say something like, oh, this is fantastic. I understand that getting a second opinion can be a really important part of my treatment. Do you mind if I do that? And, of course, and any doctor with this ult should say, no problems. Is there anybody you would recommend? So you could get a GP recommendation or a recommendation from your specialist. You make a fantastic point, Joseph, because it's such a stressful time. Half the time, you, you don't really know what you're doing. What, what is uh, the procedure going to be like? What are going to be side effects from, from chemo or radiation or another treatment? And do you think it, it's a good idea to bring someone to the appointment with you, maybe your partner or a friend? Absolutely, if you can. Yeah, I would strongly recommend partners come along. And if you don't have a partner, you can get a family member or a friend to come and join you. 
because of the problem that we had initially, which is after you say, oh, sorry, Joe, you've got cancer, the next 20 minutes is lost on you, really. Whereas the friend or the partner is very good at remembering that stuff because it's not as personal to them. You know, I mean, admittedly, if it was a, you know, if it's your spouse, they may freak out as well, but they're usually a lot better at remembering stuff because the person that it's affecting primarily, they really do shut down after that diagnosis. So we find the spouses and are, are very, very good for that reason. And absolutely. And, but you've got to remember, it's up to the patient. As a doctor, my only responsibility is to the patient. Now, if the patient says, I don't want my family here, that's fine. If the patient says, I would like to bring in half the football team, I can say, <laughs> well, that's going, to be, that's going to be pretty inconvenient, but I'm happy to give it a go. But the patient shouldn't feel, oh, I'm being pressured by my family to bring them along. My only responsibility is to the patient. And that's very important. The importance of the patient-doctor relationship is the only thing that really matters in this, this whole thing. And quite often that will involve the patient saying, I want you to keep my family involved. And then that's what we'll do. Yeah, that, that is it's their request. Yeah, that is a great point, Joseph. And if someone has questions like in between the appointments or after a procedure, like is it okay to ask for a way to contact you, like maybe an email address? Yes, email address is probably the best because as specialists, we are usually very busy. So in fact, we are usually seeing people. So to answer a phone call, we're usually having to stop what we're doing for one patient to answer a phone call. And that's an emergency, that's fine, but we don't tend to answer our phones while we're, we're chatting, we'll, we'll catch up in between patients or when we've got a break. But an email is the best way because we can get back in touch with that at a time that suits us and get the information to you. The problem with the email is that you don't want to get caught up in a long to and fro because email is very tough to get across information and you know they're very impersonal and they can be misinterpreted. So it's usually better if you've got a lot of questions. If it's just a Oh, you know, did you say I should start these antibiotics this afternoon? Yes, that's a good answer. If it's, oh, what were the side effects of that treatment again? That's not a good email because yeah. that's something you should have face-to-face because I can say, oh, you know, you, the one side effect is that you might, you know, become incontinent with this treatment and you, you can't just leave that hanging there. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. a big thing to have there. And, you know, or, you know, this gives you a risk of getting cancer. Well, how big is that risk? Whereas, you know, if you're doing it face-to-face, you go, well, that risk is very small. And in fact, the study that showed that risk probably it's an artifact, not real. So you've, you've got to be able to put things into context and you can't do it. You'd be writing 10 page emails every time to make sure you've got every nuance across. So simple questions, yes. Difficult ones, I'd make another appointment to come back and see them. That's a great point that like, I think uh, the knowledge that you can actually make another appointment to follow up and clear up any questions that you might have. I think that's really important. Absolutely, we strongly encourage that. Like, for example, like I said, we very rarely give you all the information in one sitting and then expect you to go off and have a big operation. Mostly would say, right, for example, let's just go to prostate cancer. Okay, you've got prostate cancer. It's the sort of cancer that probably needs treatment because not every cancer needs treatment, but yours does. Your treatment options are surgery or radiation. Here is an information booklet. You know, I'll tell you about surgery. There's a, about radiation. Here's an information booklet. I want you to come back in two weeks and see me. Now, if you're interested in radiation, I would recommend you go see a radiation doctor. If you have decided that you think surgery is, is the right thing for you, then, then we can do that. You know, but never, you don't see them. You've got prostate cancer. I'm going to book you in for next week. I, that's not, you've got to give people time to, to take in all that information and, and make a decision that's right for them. You've got to remember the, the decision, there's, this, there's competing reasons or there's competing sort of facts or you know, motives when people come and see you. So for me, I, my, my reason might be, oh, I want you to have this treatment because it has been proven to extend your life as long as possible. Whereas the patient will say, well, 
that's fine, but I don't want to lose my sex life, which might be part of that treatment that you recommended. So you, you can actually, you can sometimes have a bit of a disconnect because as a doctor, we do sometimes get caught up in survival and we can forget quality of life, which can be very important to patients. So that's very important. That's why there's not always a right answer. You know, it's not, living's not all about just living as long as possible. Yeah, you make a great point there, Joseph. And, uh, you know, you mentioned other specialists. So when, when you, you refer someone, a patient to another specialist, maybe, maybe it's an oncologist, how do you choose the person? Is it, is it a part of building up your network over the years? How does it work? It is. I think that's one of the advantages of working at a public hospital is that you really have a very good network straight off the bat. And there's two advantages of that. One is you get to know what they're like. You know, you, you get to know and you have people that you get on well with and you know that they do a good job and look after patients well, you'll refer them to that person. But the second issue is you've got to find someone that's convenient for the patient. So if the patient's driven 45 minutes to see you because of whatever reason they got referred to me as a urologist, but they need some chemotherapy, for example, and in fact, it'd be far more convenient for them to have that closer to home. So what we'll often get is say, you know, patients that come from outside Melbourne or you know, for whatever reason they think that coming to the city is the right thing to do. There's incredibly good urologists in the country. There's usually no reason to do that, but some things that you need to come in for. But for this stage of your treatment, you're probably better served closer to home. So we will then get in contact or we'll from our networks, we'll know, oh, that guy out in the country, he's a great medical oncologist. He can give you the chemotherapy. So there's two factors. So people that you know are good at what they do and they need to be local to the patient. Yeah, that's that, that's a fantastic point. And um, what, what about the general practitioners? What is your relationship like? Do you meet them? Do you talk to them? How would they, for example, recommend um, you? <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of the great questions and I can't fully answer it. GPs have specialists that they refer to and you would like to, you know, as a urologist, I'd love to become the specialist that certain GPs have done. I do have GPs that refer to me and you know, it's because I went to, you know, I've got the, the dad of one of my school friends is a GP that refers. Another one who, a couple that were residents when I was a resident, they sort of know you, they sort of will refer to some, and then you just start getting something that you've, you don't know how they heard about you. But often as a patient will say, oh, I saw this guy, he was really good. And then the GP will say, oh, I'll put him on my roster. And next time I might just send him something. And, and that's how you sort of build up uh, is how GPs refer to so it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a black box. I don't think any specialist really knows how, how they refer. We go out and do sort of GP presentations. So they at least get to know you and go, well, this guy's not an idiot. That's what you want GPs to think of you, really. <laughs> um, but as far as the role of the GP, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that this is for any person. The GP is the most important person in their life regarding their medical treatments. The GP is the quarterback. They coordinate everything that's going on. So the patient that has, you know, heart disease, prostate cancer, and you know, needs a hip replacement. The GP says, right, I'm gonna get you to see this orthopedic surgeon, I'm gonna get you to see this cardiologist and, and this other surgeon. And, and they coordinate all that for the patient. And if the GP's not on their game and good GPs are worth their weight in gold, then they will take very good care of their patients. So that's what I'd always find. If you don't get on well, you haven't got a GP that you click well with, then you need to find another GP. They are the most important person in the whole medical system, really. Well, that, that's a fantastic point you're making. And um, what about, you know, we touched on second opinion before. Do folks come to you for second opinion? If so, how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, we strongly encourage second opinions. There's, there's different specialists have different attitudes to second opinions. Some of them see it as this patient's come to see me, great, I'm going to take over their care. And that's not unreasonable. That's how they want to run the patient. I personally don't do that. I'm very much a, right, you know, your treating specialist has said, you know, this is a blackout. This is how I would treat it. You know, I write a letter, including the first specialist, 
And I say, you know, it's our, and I'll often, you get to the end, and I'll go, oh, yeah, that's what my first guy said. I'll say, great, go back and, and see them. And if you've got any more questions, I'm happy to see you again. But I don't try and take over people's care. I think there's, you know, as, as urologists, I think we, we're all very reasonable. And, uh, you know, I don't have any, any uh, misconceptions that I'm any better than any of the other guys that are out there. And they all do a very good job. So very happy. We have areas of specialty. There's certain things that I can do that other guys don't specialize in. I did, I did my fellowship in sort of advanced prostate and uh, and bladder cancer. So I can do certain bladder cancer operations where it's called neobladder that other people don't necessarily do. But apart from that, we're all, we're all very well skilled usually. But there's different types of urologists as well. So, you know, there's, there's oncology urologists, there's functional, so people that have trouble with their bladders. There's reconstructive urologists. So they do you know, people that need repair of their urethras or spinal cord patients, these sorts of things, they can look after that as well. And then there's sort of fertility urologists. So everyone, we sort of fall into broad groups that we have our, our areas of interest as well. So to answer you, get back to your question, the second opinion, very happy to do them, but I'm not looking to take over anybody's care. But if they get to the end, they go, look, I want you to you know, continue seeing you. That's that's fine. That's certainly not my intention. Yep, cool. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of things changing in urology or any subfield of urology. So how do you keep up with, with the latest research and how do you actually incorporate it into your daily yeah. practice? So there's two, because there's a few ways we keep up to date. One, we are expected to keep reading the literature. So we will read the latest journal articles. And I've got things that I've flagged that if an article comes out in a particular topic, say prostate cancer or testicular cancer, I'll get an email list once a week saying these are the latest articles in your area of interest. So I usually click on those. And then you've got your, that's the great advantage of being part of a public urology unit is that there, you know, there'll be a group of urologists and you'll bring your interesting cases to the meeting and say, oh, this is my intricate. Anyone got any advice? And someone else, oh, I did that and did, you know, I had one of these a couple of years ago. I, I found this useful or look up this paper that will help you. And oh, yeah, okay, great. And then the third way is we go to conferences. So we have to, well, we don't have to go to conferences, but it's certainly part of our continuing medical education. So we've got national conferences. So I'll go to at least one of those, usually two a year, and I'll go to one or two international conferences a year. But it's all with the purpose of, as any doctor now needs, we've got what we call CME, which is our continuing medical education, where we have to do a certain number of things to get enough points to make sure that we're staying up to date. So the College of Surgeons, for me, I'm a urologist, are very, very particular on what I can and can't claim. And they're very strict on making sure that I keep my education up to date. So I think it's, and I think it's good. It's great for the community that you can be, you can rest assured that, you know, if one sort of thinks it's the College of Surgeons is this sort of, bastion of uh you know sort of old men that are trying to keep it a closed shop i don't think there's at all i think you know the a triple c and everything that's happened over the last 10 years saying well in fact you know you are a monopoly and you've got to work extraordinarily hard to maintain the college of has done an enormous amount of work to make sure that it's not a monopoly but it's a that all the doctors you can be sure that they're at a high standard yeah that, that's fantastic joseph and th- that's obviously part of loneliness and, and do you teach at the moment as well i do well, i do so i'm a researcher as well so i'm looking at um i look at uh, ischemia reperfusion injury which is what happens say with transplant because you say take out a kidney it sits with no blood going through it for a while then we plug it into someone else so that's the ischemia means no blood supply and then the reperfusion and that blood comes back into that organ it, uh, it actually causes some damage. So we're looking at ways of preventing that using zinc. So I'm fascinated by that myself. So I do research and I do teaching. We have medical students that are attached with our unit and we they will take them through cases in um, you know in outpatients. When we're seeing patients, we'll ask them, hey, are you happy a medical student sits in? You know, everybody says, yeah, that's fine. And we'll, we'll discuss different cases with them then. So we do teaching 
to mostly to medical students, but we also have, I guess, the other teaching we do is we have other doctors that are in the urology training program, training to be urologists, and we'll be in, you know, three, four years, and some of them are almost fully through, and we are teaching them the operations. It's very much an apprenticeship surgery. You have to teach the next generation how to do what you've done, and that's that's how we've got to where we are over the last few hundred years of the guys older than you, you know, teaching the younger generation. So would you say that the, the, this field is almost like Yes, I've, I've been in IT for my whole life, and I've seen this evolution of you know technology changing so rapidly. Do you see this uh, evolution happening around urology, around oncology, that these sort of areas? Absolutely. I just it's almost unfathomable where medicine will be in ten years. I think it's just yeah. You know, if you'd look back ten years ago and said, oh, you know, you're going to be, you know, you'll be carrying around a little phone in your pocket that's got the computing power to be able to surf the net and answer any medical problem you've got and probably make diagnoses very well. You would have thought it was crazy, but that's what we've come in 10 years. Can you imagine in 10 years time, what we'll know about genetics of disease will come on a lot. The way of managing disease, I think, you know, these automated diagnoses sort of programs are useful, but not the be all and end all because, you know, this is, I guess it was one of the big points is everyone thinks, well, I can just plug what my symptoms into Google and I'll get an answer. You've got, to, you've got to know what to type in. And that's what medicine will be about, I think. I think medicine will be about guiding people through and, you know, oh, look, I've got a cough. I think I'm dying of lung cancer. Well, no, 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 you don't. you've actually got this. And I think this makes more sense. You know? So you can get lost if you don't understand the basics of what, of what you're trying to get into. And that's where your GP and your specialists are really there to help. And I think we're a long way off automating. This is good for me, at least. I think we're a long way off automating surgeries. But you know, with automation coming and there'll be parts of things in medicine that will be automated that are currently done by doctors. You know, classic examples would be something like radiology, like reading an x-ray. The, the computers can do that very, very well now. But when they miss it, they really miss it big. That's why you still need urologists. It's a lot like planes could probably take off and land themselves. But if they don't, geez, you want to pile it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. Um, thank you so much, Joseph. I really appreciate your time. No trouble at all, Joe. It's lovely to meet you and good luck with your podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. No problem.